May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Get behind me, you Satan. It's a hell of a thing to say to your friend, isn't it, so to speak? Not just any friend either, but one of your closest friends, one of your most loyal supporters. Peter, Peter left behind all that was secure, all that was familiar, set out on the road with this teacher, Jesus. Jesus seems to have had a, a particular affection for the man. He nicknamed him Peter, the Rock. Along with James and John, Peter is a part of a kind of inner circle of disciples. They're the ones who are taken up the mountain to witness the transfiguration. They're the ones who Jesus will invite to come with him a little deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane while the others wait at the edges. They're the ones, Peter, James, and John, whose words and actions are most likely to be noted as the gospel unfolds. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. The section that immediately precedes tonight's passage, Mark recounts a conversation between Jesus and his followers, in which Peter's voice also figures significantly. They're on their way to Caesarea Philippi. And as they walk that road, Jesus asks the disciples, Who do people say that I am? What's the word in these villages and towns we've been passing through? All these people who are coming to me for healing or to hear what I have to say, what are they saying about me? The disciples start to answer. Some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Some are saying that you're Elijah. Others are claiming that you're one of the prophets. These villages are buzzing with speculation, in other words. By this time, it was common knowledge that Herod had executed John the Baptist, but maybe he's returned from the dead. You just never know when it comes to that wild man, John. It was commonly believed in those times that the prophet Elijah would return to the world, would appear again as a forerunner to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Now, wouldn't Elijah, the legendary Elijah, wouldn't he have the kind of healing and cleansing authority that people claim Jesus has? Or maybe, maybe a new prophet altogether, a new prophet of God. Come to us when we need something to save us from these occupying Romans. That's the word on the streets, Jesus. That's what they're saying. And in response, Jesus basically ups the ante. And he asks, who do you say that I am? Peter's the first one off the mark, answering without any hesitation. Typical of Peter. You are the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the promised one, the Christos. Not a forerunner, not a prophet, not an anticipation of the arrival of Messiah. You're the real deal, Jesus. You're the one God has sent to deliver Israel from its bondage and to establish God's righteous rule on the earth. It seems that this is the moment that the penny kind of drops for Peter as he says it all out loud. And it's the first time in Mark's narrative 
that anyone in this circle of disciples uses the title Christos or Messiah openly. This isn't just Jesus of Nazareth we've been following. It's Jesus Christ. That's where this evening's reading picks up. After ordering them not to tell anyone about him being Messiah, not yet at least, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark even notes that Jesus said this all quite openly, as if to suggest that now that Peter has dared to use that word Christos, it's time to talk about the work of the Anointed One, what it's really going to look like. And it sure doesn't look anything like what Peter had been expecting. So Mark tells us Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, It's a strong word to be rebuked. Mark doesn't tell us what Peter actually said, but it's probably fair to assume that he was trying to tune up Jesus on his theology. Look, Jesus, messiahs don't get themselves killed. They win. That's sort of the whole point. Let's talk some serious messiah strategy here, how we can actually put this into action. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, you Satan. You're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human. The word is strong. Probably the strongest he could have used. Satan. And it would have stung. The name means adversary or accuser. Mark's original audience would have instantly heard in it echoes from the opening section of the gospel account where Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. They might well have been familiar with the stories that were circulating that would later be written down by Matthew and Luke, but still circulating about the content of those adversarial temptations, temptations to grab hold of power by an easy road, certainly not by suffering or by death. I faced down those temptations already, Peter, but here you are acting like a Satan, and throwing another one at me, the same kind, all over again. You think, Peter, that your theology is better than mine. Listen, all of you, listen. He turns to all of the disciples. Listen to something deeper. If you want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, will save it. Take up your cross. Now, from our side of the story, and with some serious distance on the story, it's easy to miss the outrageous tone of that invitation to take up a cross. How about take up your noose and follow me? Or even more audaciously, how about pick up those knives 
that are being used by the ISIS militants to behead their foes and follow me. That was precisely the walk of those 21 Coptic Christians who were killed by ISIS militants just two weeks ago in Libya. Take up your cross. Peter's head must have been swimming as he listened to all of this talk of losing and winning, losing for the sake of winning. Might have even been a bit tempting to pack it all up right then and there. Head back to the fishing boat. I don't understand this. This isn't what I signed on for. Peter doesn't do that, of course. Instead, he just keeps stumbling alongside of Jesus, trying in his own way to sort things out. In time, Peter will get there, but he'll see and he'll experience some serious losing before the light finally penetrates his thick head. Too bad Peter hadn't done the thing that Paul manages to do as he writes his letter to the Romans, which was to remember, to remember the formative stories of God's people and to see in those ancient and formative stories an utterly audacious hope. Hoping against hope, Paul writes to the Romans, Hoping against hope, our forebear Abraham believed he would become the father of many nations, according to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. Abraham, Paul continues, Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead. And then almost parenthetically, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He didn't waver in his faith. Well, Paul is perhaps a little exuberant when he says that Abraham never wavered, that he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God because fully convinced he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Because if you actually read those stories of Abraham and Sarah, you'll realize that it was all a little bit more complicated than that. That Abraham did have his moments, but on the whole, Paul's right. Abraham and Sarah did live into an outrageous promise. In spite of their being aged and childless, they would, they believed, still become somehow the parents of God's new people. N.T. Wright calls this Paul's masterstroke as he draws together this ancient story with the unfolding Christian story. Abraham looked at God's promises, Wright observes, recognized that they meant that God would give life where there was none, and believed. The Christian listens to the gospel message that the Creator God raised the Messiah from the dead, recognizes that this means God is doing what is normally impossible and believes. Faith here is an active and personal trust in the God who characteristically acts this way. It's a great line. Faith here is an active and personal trust in the God who characteristically acts this way. And then with an eye to the story from the gospel according to Mark from this evening, N.T. Wright adds, 
It was this faith, this act of faith, that Peter sadly lacked. Looking at things from a human point of view, not God's. Peter had not yet penetrated to the secret at the heart of Israel's vocation. That Israel's God, the world's creator, took delight in acting in this topsy-turvy fashion. Precisely to redeem a topsy-turvy world. And he called his followers to do the same. Peter wasn't there yet. He couldn't yet embrace the idea of this upside-down way that God was acting in the world, a very upside-down world. He will get there. So will James and John and all of the others except for Judas. Judas, whose treachery may well have been born of his unwillingness to lose of his unwillingness to trust in the God who characteristically acts in this way. Judas, unlike the others, couldn't go topsy-turvy. More than any other season of the year, Lent is the time to explore and engage and submit to our topsy-turvy Messiah who, for the sake of the integrity of his friendship with Peter, for the sake of the integrity of that friendship, was prepared to call him the worst name possible, but then to keep walking along beside him, helping Peter to stumble along and find his way. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.